If you want access to bonus episodes, reading lists for every series of Empire, a chat community, discounts for all the books mentioned in the week's podcast, ad-free listening, and a weekly newsletter, sign up to Empire Club at www.empirepoduk.com. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And welcome to Empire with me, Anita Arnand. And me, William Derimple. You know what? It was it was quite the romp we had uh, in the last podcast, <laughs> we did. wasn't it? We had a great romp. Timor, what a one, eh? <laughs> eh? Eh? I mean, good Lord. And and I think if we were to sum up, we have a man who is a terrible... complete psychopath. <laughs> ruthless. <laughs> yes, complete psychopath. I think I might have said the word bastard quite a lot, actually, in the last episode. But he really was. He was peak awfulness. And uh, I, I love the... <laughs> There's so, there's so much to love. Is, it the, love the is it the heads of the beheaded knights of Spitler being catapulted into their galleys? I like that you one. That. Oh, you love that, did you? I like the guys being rolled in clay and turned into and 250 of them being made into a tower. That's imaginative. Yeah, I mean, I worry for you yeah. that the, the, the sentence is constructed around, I love the, but I mean, it was it was quite vivid. And it was quite shocking. Look here, Anita Allen, you and I wrote a book together <laughs> where we competed to find horrors for each other in the archives. And, uh, yeah, no, that's true. But I mean, I, I can honestly say I love beating you. That's what it was. Anything at all. Yeah. You know, that was the competitive one. But there was that awful story in amongst his litany of horrors. This man, you know, Vlad the Impaler has nothing on him. But, uh, well, you know, when the little children are wheeled out in their white clothes holding the Quran and he just mows them down with cavalry. You know, I first heard that story in Sivas on my very first trip in 1986 following Marco Polo. And uh, I remember then thinking, who mows down? Innocent babes. Children in white clothes holding a Quran. 
of his own faith uh, and calling them infidels. But you know what I, uh, else I found really beautiful about that story was that Sivas, you know, you, he can try and obliterate it, but he said, you know, archaeologists had, had uncovered so much of what he had tried to obliterate. And that is always the way, isn't it? It's empires built upon the bones of others. One day those bones will speak. And I find that really moving. I tell you another, I mean, this is a different story, but do you remember last year when we were doing the Armenian genocide? We did all those yeah, stories of the, the Armenians course. being marched out. Well, Sivas is one of those cities that the Armenians had large population of, and they were marched out in the desert. And in 1986, when I first went to Sivas, there was a kind of lapidarium outside the Gok Madrasa, this wonderful psychological hospital, famous for using water, the sound of water, to cure people who were mentally unstable. And outside that, there was this lapidarium where they had just piled up in the way, you know, around the Mediterranean, you find, you know, a bit of Roman statuary here, a Seljuk inscription here. And amid all the stuff were a few Armenian gravestones and kachkars, these, these cross stones that the Armenians put up. And a year later, I came back to research further and take more notes. And everything was there, as I remember it, except the Armenian stones, which had gone. And there were still the sockets you could see where they'd been oh. taken out, and they just mysteriously disappeared between that. And I remember that was a moment I thought, I've got, again, I've got to research this. You must have asked where, where and who and how. I mean, did you ever get a where and who and how? They said, what? Never heard of it. Really? I mean, you point to the things they said, yuck. Really? Right. You know, it's those relics, it's those little things. I think, you know, when we, because often in this series, we talk about hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed, destroyed, wiped out. But it's just one single thing can be talismanic. And I just remember I went to, um, just very recently in Atlanta. This is for your, your wreath lecture life. Yeah, the wreath yeah. lectures. But it was like one shoe of one child who had been sort of, you know, transported. And it's that kind of thing. It's, uh, it's just something. I remember this was a turning point for me. I, I then went and did a project on the Armenians. I was working at that point for The Independent in the days when it had this wonderful magazine, which had wonderful, wonderful writers writing in it. And I managed to get a commission to go around the different Armenian communities gathering before and after photographs of Armenian churches before the genocide and what was left today. And of course, many of them completely gone, converted into barns or, or turned to mosques or whatever. And this was the first, I think, thing that, that directed me towards from the Holy Mountain. It was a big moment for me. We're going to crack on with this, of course, but it's that kind of the whispering from the past and um, how sort of bearing witness and poets and painters and artists and more lately photographers who were there on the scene who, who you know, whatever has been erased cannot be erased. And this is the case, you know, across the entire Middle East, wherever you go, there are now these solid nation states which are existing on the ruins of what had been a, a very multi-ethnic region. And in Turkey, the Greeks and the Armenians are missing. In Greece, the Turks are missing. In Israel, the Palestinians are missing. And so on, you know, and, and, and you find governments rewriting history by changing the place names, turning Arabic names into Turkish ones or Turkish ones into Arabic ones or uh, Arabic names into Hebrew ones. And uh, this sensation of a, of a very multi-ethnic past being replaced by these, these mono-ethnic nationalisms which are there today. But you still have the empty chair at the dining table and the empty chair speaks 
so loudly. Or the socket of the Kachka. Yeah. Anyway, look, this is much happier because after the death of Timur, the hyacinth bouquet of history, <laughs> you just sort of like sounded very sort of nouveau riche and very blingtastic and try to recreate palaces and gateways and gilded uh, beauty. And there was this amazing description you had of this forest of gold with instead of jewels, rubies and emeralds. I was very taken with that, actually. That sounded straight out of the Arabian Nights. Um, but he was sort of the, the tasteless start of what becomes something that is full of taste and inspiration. And this is this is the way history works. Again, these miraculous things, how because of education, because of money, people like Timur coming, coming from very simple backgrounds with often very bloodthirsty lives, produce children and grandchildren, highly educated, thirsting for learning. And this extraordinary renaissance that takes place in Central Asia in the immediate aftermath. Yeah. So you say renaissance and that, you know what, it's it's that phrase also that stuck with me from the last episode, the Oriental Medici. Robert Byron's phrase, yeah. Yes. This is accurate because, well, let's start to talk about this because um, Timur's successors proved to be some of the greatest scholars and aesthetes of Islamic history. I think it's fair to say that, where he ripped up and destroyed the old global order, changed the complexion of the world between the Mediterranean to India. It's almost as if they are trying to put a fragrance together in this sort of rather wonderful mosaic of art, culture. Who, who do you want to start us off with, with when we talk about the Timurids, who are the, the progeny of Timur and those who came after? Well, there's also, I think you should talk about, in a sense, this sort of cultural mulch which is left in the aftermath of, of Timur, because wherever he went, whatever he destroyed, he would bring the craftsmen, the artists, the calligraphers back to Samarkand. Oh, yes, that's right. He took the falconers and massacred everyone else. <laughs> and took, yeah, exactly. Tradespeople, glassblowers. Well, that means that when Timur dies on the verge of, of planning his massive invasion of China, which never happened, you have in the surroundings of Samarkand and in this area of, of what's now Uzbekistan, an astonishing pool of talent. Also, a lot of money among the rulers to spend it and commission wonderful things. And this is exactly what happens. And the person I'd love to talk about first is Ulugbeg. Ulugbeg is this extraordinary grandson of Timur, who not only commissions brilliant works of astronomy, mathematics, and science from the tens of thousands of scholars that he funds, but he also researches and writes it all himself. And he provides financial aid to 10,000 students at 12 institutions of learning that he founds between Samarkand and Herat and Shai Sabs and all these Timurid centers. And Fully 500 of them are specializing in mathematics. Again, this is not uh, something that you, you expect the grandsons of, of Timur to be to be funding. Can I just say my husband would thoroughly approve this is money well spent. <laughs> he 500 mathematicians. Very, very good. He's a great man for numbers. And yet we shouldn't be surprised because the man after whom the algorithm is named Al-Khwarizmi is from this region too. This is an area that is famously at the center of the study of science mathematics. And it's a place where a lot of Indian ideas coming up from the great Indian mathematicians like Aryabhatta and Brahmagupta are mixing with ideas from the Persianate and the Greek world. And it's in Central Asia that all this comes together. And Ulugh Beg 
in the 1410s to the 1420s invests in this. He builds these madrasas, which are not mm. just institutions of religious learning, but it's exactly the same sort of time as this is happening at Oxford and Cambridge when you've got what had started off as basically theological colleges are beginning to branch out into empirical sciences. The same is happening in Samarkand. Well, what I love is this at the Regasan Square in Samarkand. There's this great madrasa, which is a place of learning and normally theological learning. He inscribes into the door the words of the Prophet Muhammad. And I'll just, I'll, I'll, I'll say it. It's a hadith, right? The, the, the search for knowledge is the duty of every Muslim. So a statement of intent, you know, enter here and learn some stuff. It's, uh, it's pretty blunt, isn't it? And we know a great deal about this madrasa because not only do we have several chroniclers and foreign visitors like the, the Spanish ambassador recording all this. But we also have the letters of Ulugbeg's great friend, who he makes the kind of rector of the madrasa, who's a guy called Kazi Zade Rumi. And he is one of the great astronomers of the period, and he directs his students towards the sciences, especially mathematics, we said, but also astronomy. And Ulugbeg also supports scholars who are interested in history and literature, as well as music. And so it's, I mean, you know, this astonishing moment in history. Well, I mean, one of the most delicious aspects of all of this is that he has the power and he has the money power and cash to make this happen. But also he is obviously an enthusiast because yeah. you know he sets up all these classrooms and he gets the best teachers in the land to come and, and teach. But he turns up almost every day to sit <laughs> in the class and you know put his hand up to ask questions. And he doesn't mind being contradicted, which is even more extraordinary because he, what Timur would have done to anyone. That <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Has anyone got any other opinions? <laughs> Off with your head. But no, yeah, no, but he wasn't like that. Okay, that is interesting. So he builds on the work of Al-Khwarizmi. Al-Khwarizmi, again, we should say it means from Khwarizm, which is the area to the east of Samarkand, also within modern Uzbekistan, the, the area around Kiva. So Al-Khwarizmi is from this same patch of land, and Ulugbeg makes it his job to take Al-Khwarizmi's books on, on mathematics forward. A lot of Al-Khwarizmi's work is based on clarifying and simplifying ancient Indian work on astronomy. So you've got these two great founding fathers of Indian mathematics, Aryabhata and Brahmagupta. Aryabhata writing, I think, in the second century, and Brahmagupta, is it the fourth or fifth? Anyway, that sort of era of history. Brahmagupta working out of Rajasthan, out of near Mount Abu, producing extraordinary work and defining the properties of zero. Yes. You know, it's like the goodness gracious me sketch, our dear friends, um, um, Sanjeev Bhaskar <laughs> Sanjeev and Miracel. You know, yeah, Sanjeev Bhaskar, who we adore. Hello, Sanjeev, he listens to this podcast. But, you know, saying that zero, Indian. I mean, it was Indian. Is that, I mean, can you, can you just confirm? In this case, it actually is. In fact, my, my new book, The Golden Road, which deals with some of this, is actually rather like an extended Sanjeev Bhaskar Sketch. Uh, sketch. Indian. <laughs> oh, he's going to love it. It's not uh, royal family Indian or Leonardo Indian or Christianity Indian, but it is zero Indian. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm glad about that. But th I mean, the reason that mathematics is is very important here in the court of the, the Timurids is that they are involved in something that is going to be so important, transformative, and we still rely on it today, which is this this process of calculating with decimal fractions? Because until that, I mean, that was just a vague concept or he just refines it or what's the position in decimalized fractions? So th there's two things going on here. One is, I think, 
just the basic love of extending the boundaries of knowledge and particularly this project of mapping the heavens. But there's also a reason for this, a practical reason for this, is that at this time, not just in Central Asia and the world of Islam and India, but in Western Europe, there is a strong belief that the stars determine your future. So this is partly an exercise in what in, in Sanskrit is called Jyotisa, which, which is a science that encompasses both astronomy and astrology, which we think of as, as two completely different things. But at this point, both at East and West are fused together. So the idea is that if you study the stars and really understand what's going on in the heavens, you can predict the future and plot your path in this world with greater confidence. And Kazi Zade Rumi, who is Ulug Beg's chief of the madrasa, publishes extraordinary work on uh, the decimal system, on chords and signs, and mm -hmm. solving cubic equations, and computes the sign to one degree of accuracy that's not surpassed for two centuries. And he writes a book called A Treatise on the Chord and Sign, also another called A Key to Arithmetic, in which he works out the value of pi to a greater degree of precision uh, than either the Greeks or Chinese had done and greater than any European was to do for another 150 years. Can I just ask, I mean, does, does this centre of learning become a magnet, as others we've talked about in the past, particularly when we talked about the Ottoman series? You know, these places become magnets to clever people from all around the world that are drawn. Is, is that the case here too? And also a model, because in India, Raja Jai Singh based his Jantamantas Ah. on Ulugbeg's astronomies. I've read this. I'm sure one of our listeners, if I'm wrong, will correct me. Aware that I'm walking a slightly thin ice here, yeah, but yeah. I think that's right, that Raja Jai Singh is looking to Ulugbeg's work when he's building his Jantamantas in Jaipur and in Varanasi and in Ujjain, the three observatories that he builds. But also what's very, very exciting uh, about this period, it's to the Timurids that we owe the first kind of analog calculator known to man. Used for doing, and the mathematicians among you will know what this means, we can just ooh and ah at this as if we're looking at a fireworks display, but linear interpolation. I'm going to talk to my husband about this afterwards. I'm sure it sounds very important, <laughs> but it is, um, it is still used in, in mathematical astronomy today and invented a planetary equatorium for identifying the position of the celestial sphere at any planet at any one time. Now, this is predates telescopes and computers and calculations. That's a pretty extraordinary thing to, to have done. So what they do is that they build this enormous three-story circular observatory in Samarkand, topped with a massive sort of mega sextant which mm -hmm. is carefully calibrated and over 100 feet in radius. And this may look like a sort of just a big sort of astronomical equivalent of Timur's sort of, uh, you know, football-sized playing field mosque. Palace to his wife, yeah. But no, mm. it actually produces extraordinary results. And they produce a whole set of new tables, the Zij tables, 300 pages of charts and quantitative data, and they fix with precise figures the location of 992 stars. That's amazing. And this is all being done in Samarkand in, in, the, in the 15th century. We're all brought up with Galileo and you know all these extraordinary things. We're just not taught 
the uh, the extraordinary advances made by these people. But he understood also data, the value of data, because he compiles all this stuff in a compendium called, is it Zij, Collection of Astronomical Tables? Zij are the, are the astrological tables. It just means tables, okay. And, and you get these being produced by Khwarezmi yeah. in Baghdad in the 7th, 8th centuries, at the time of the House of Wisdom. And yeah. Ulug Beg is taking this forward. And what's fascinating is that, that you know, there are these moments in history when all these things come together. You get it in Italy in the 15th and 16th centuries. You get it in, in Britain at the time of Newton. You get it in Ujjain in India at the time of Brahmagupta. But not often is Samarkand and the Timurids included in this list. What's left in Samarkand today? I mean, if you go now, what will you see? There's a lot left. It's an extraordinary place to visit because not only do you have the remains of the observatory, and the remains of Timur's sort of vainglorious mosques and palaces. But you also have what is very, very clearly the inspiration behind the sort of Mughal architecture, which will take root in India in the next century. And there's a whole hilltop filled with mini Taj Mahals. Really? And, and it is architects from Samarkand Gosh. and Herat who go and build Humayun's tomb and the Taj in the generations to come. That's amazing. Yeah, exactly the same shape of white dome that, that reaches its finest flowering at the Taj. So you see on the sunset, you see just a silhouette of, 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 of mini Mahals. Is that, how does it work? Well, in this case, they're mini ones. They're all, yeah. they're all sort of house size uh, rather than, you know, sort of mega palace size. How spectacular, though. But how spectacular. How wonderful. Look, let's take a break here, because when we come back after the break, I want to talk to you about Herat and to talk to you about one of Timur's grandsons, Shahrukh, not Khan, but Shahrukh and, and, and his great doings as well. So join us after the break. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee, and you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you look like a gem, sneakers and streetwear so fresh, every step feels fly. eBay gets it, so look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love, and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole, and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even your speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, <laughs> or people will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. 
We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. So just before the break, we were talking about this fabulous place of learning, Samarkand. But I want to talk about Herat now and another one of the descendants of Timur. We're talking about Shah Rukh. Just He's the grandson of Timur. Like Lubeg, he's a grandson. So what happens is that when Timur takes very little interest in institution building, so even faster than the previous set of Mongols, the whole thing falls apart politically and, and shatters into, into fragments. And one grandson, Ulubeg, gets Samarkand, and another grandson, Sharuk, gets Herat. And if you like, if Samarkand is the center of science and it's the MIT of Central Asia at this period, then Herat is the center of the arts. And it's one, I have to say, I mean, it's, I've longed to go there ever since I read Robert Barron's Road to Oxiana, which is another of my sacred texts. Robert Barron, along with Stephen Runciman, was my sort of one of my gods when I was growing up. And I finally got to Herat when I was writing Return of a King. And it is the most extraordinary place. It's on the far west of Afghanistan, on the border of Iran, just over from Meshed and uh, Iranian Khorasan. And it has a completely different feel to the rest of Afghanistan. It's on the Harirud River. Uh, it's very green. There's a wonderful Sufi shrine outside on, on, on the hills where Babur goes and Robert Byron goes. But in the main center of Herat is the remains of an extraordinary institution of learning. We've been amazed by the madrasas set up by Uluq Beg in Samarkand. But in Herat, a woman uh, ruler, Goha Shad, sets up a college for women. Go, sister. So you get, again, extraordinary, this, the, the, the liberality of this, that you have serious commitment to women's education, higher education in this renaissance, in the 15th century, in the middle of Central Asia. And at the same time that Gohashad is commissioning the building of this college, she is covering it with the most exquisite tile work. 
And you go there today and all that remains of this extraordinary college complex, which originally was this whole series of courtyards, like an Oxbridge college, one after another, all that's left now are the minarets from the mosque. And everything was blown up by, I'm ashamed to say, the British again, who blew it up thinking it would make a, a good fortress for Tsarist troops in the middle of the great game. And no. I think in the 1880s or I mean, relatively recently, having made it through all sorts of other horrors, it's the Brits who set dynamite charges and blow up one of the most brilliant institutions of learning ever raised, and certainly one of the most beautiful institutions of learning. And when you go there today, you try to get to the towers. And when I went, there was, there was a minefield which hadn't had the mines removed. So on one hand, you had these beautiful timid tiles lying, having fallen off the minarets, in yeah. the ground, just loose on the ground, these gorgeous, gorgeous works of art. On the other hand, you had to take your <laughs> life into your hand to go and see them. To go and get them. And uh, can I just say, I mean, these when you say the tiles, I think, you know, I, I'm looking at what remains there now. The, the Great Mosque still remains in Herat. I don't know, does that date to the same period? Same period. That's recently been been very heavily restored. But it's the Musalla, it's called. It's the, the remains of the the Madrasa for Girls, founded by Gohashad. Gohashad's mausoleum survived pretty well intact until the 90s when one very ill-advised governor decided to restore it with modern bathroom tiles. So these beautiful timurid tiles were thrown away. No. So the timurid tiles, I mean, I, yeah, you know what they are, but, but for those who don't, they, these are the intricate blue and white, aren't we? We were talking about tiles with gold, blue, white, green. There's all sorts of colours. There's dark, dark blues and extraordinary lavender blues, deep, dark blacks. And then geometric designs on top, sort of almost in gold or calligraphy, are beautiful things. Yeah, they are, they are stunning. Anyone who has got the internet. Have a look now because they are really stunning. The Musala in Herat, H-E-R-A-T. Uh, they are extraordinary, extraordinary ruins. Yeah, and, but this bathroom tile business, who did that? That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> just, how could you even think that was a good idea? But the, the painting that goes on here is the thing that really distinguishes it. And there's this supreme painter who's called Kamluddin Bizad. And he becomes famous throughout the entire Islamic world as the great painter, what I suppose Leonardo or uh, or Michelangelo is to the Italian Renaissance, Bizad is to the, the Herat Renaissance. And he's famous partly for his portraits of officials and his amazing perception of human character. He He's one of the very first Islamic artists who can produce extraordinarily lifelike portraits of living individuals that makes you feel you can actually perceive someone's character and understand what they were like. But mm. he also does these very eccentric compositions. Persian art is often very formalized and stiff and still and silent. Bizad's creations are alive and vibrant and full of extraordinary and unexpected colours. There's a very cute story about Gorshad's mosque, which uh, I just love, which is, you know, when she was buying up the land to, to create this thing. First of all, I mean, it's just amazing that a woman has the agency, the money and, and the permission to do this at this time. And that we don't know her. I mean, that, you know, how many people have heard of Goha Shad? She's But I think this tells you a little bit about her. So there's the story goes that in the middle of this sort of complex of, of houses that people owned on the land that she wanted to build on, there was this one obstinate old lady who would not sell her cottage. She just refused, completely wouldn't do it. 
So Gorash had to intervene herself and say, just sell, sell the cottage, just sell me the cottage. This is a great work that is going to go on here. And the old woman would only sell it under one condition, that they name part of the mosque after her. <laughs> Love that story. And that's why in Gorashat there is an old woman's mosque. And that is the reason, because it was <laughs> a promise it. made by God. Isn't that lovely? I love that. I, mean, I hope it's true. Don't I know if it's it. true, but that's what they say anyway. So, I mean, th- this this beautiful complex that was, was built by this one, it just made me really want to know much more about her. And the really frustrating thing is that a woman who has left such a, a rather marvellous footprint, and there are these lovely stories circulating about her, is that there is not much known at all. You've got ballads sung about her in, in Herat, but they all talk about Shah Rukh and his love for her, you know, that he loved her. But, and, you know, she's, she's almost sort of the object of of love and devotion, but not much else about what she looked like, what she liked, what she disliked. Her brothers, though, I mean, obviously he really did treasure her because he made her brothers administrators in the Timurid court in Herat as well, which is, you know, not not always a given to the family of the wife. But Persian culture, Persian language elevated to such a, a high level under her, and her husband sort of gives her the space to do that. Um, and even after the death, I think, of her husband in 1447, she's still there. You know, she's still maneuvering. I think she maneuvers her favorite grandson to take the throne. So she she has sort of a, a de facto rule in a place which is now, you know, sadly, women have so little agency in Afghanistan these days, as we know. I know. The, the contrast between the situation of the poor women of Afghanistan under Taliban rule and the fact that in this period here in the 15th and early 16th century, you have one of the most uh, liberal and highly educated and and humanistic women rulers in history. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just hopefully there'll be some more that can be dug up about this rather extraordinary woman. And hopefully the people of uh, the women of Afghanistan have an idea of who she was, because uh, she's almost you know, sort of like a patron saint of women who want to learn. Now, this wonderful, sophisticated world at Harat is described for us by the first of the Mughal emperors, Babu, who as a young man, before he conquered India, went to Herat. And Babu, who's this incredibly sophisticated and intelligent diarist who writes his life uh, in one of the great diaries of history, often compared with the diaries of Pepys, for the only time in his life he ever felt himself like a sort of unsophisticated, mud-booted provincial, is when he goes to Herat. And there's, there's this charming passage when Babo describes a moment when they're serving duck in his memoirs, and he confesses he doesn't know how to eat a duck, uh, and he's watching how everyone's using their knives and forks. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, as with as with most dining out experiences, just avoid the bill. <laughs> That's very funny. You'll get he that. He stays so long in. That was a really funny joke. Did you not get it? <laughs> I, I did get it. It yeah. was good. So it's very funny. Uh, there's another occasion when he goes to a party. Uh, and he's never drunk, and they're all drinking wine. And he says, uh, my cousins were listening to the music of flutes and dulcimers, drinking, singing, dancing. And I knew nothing of this, he said, nothing of cheer or pleasure. And his cousins mock him for not drinking. And this is what Babo says. He says, the party was altogether elegant, and it crossed my mind now uh, when the Mirzas were so pressing, uh, and when, too, we were in a, ha- a town so refined as Herat, where should we drink if not here, I thought? Here were all the chattels and utensils of luxury and comfort are gathered and in use. So I resolved to drink wine, and I determined to cross that stream. The social cups were filmed. The guests, 
down the wine as if it was the water of life, and when it mounted to their heads, the party waxed warm. And you get this impression that Baba's completely dazzled by the court at Herat and the brilliant Persianate cultural world that had been created around him. His was a wonderful age, wrote Babo, looking back on it. Khorasan and Herat were full of learned and matchless men. And this is my favorite line. In Herat, a man can't stretch his leg without touching a poet's backside. But with Babo, what happens is that he lingers so long in Herat because he's so impressed by this extraordinary, sophisticated world that he waits too long in into winter. Uh, through the autumn. And as he's heading back to Kabul, he gets caught in a terrible snowstorm. Very nearly loses half his men, I think, in a, a caught in this snowstorm and, ha- and just makes it back to Kabul alive. But he, he writes so wonderfully about the sophistication of the world of Herat. And, and this is what he tries to reproduce when he has his own kingdom in India. Yeah. I'm going to take you just out of Herat and just take you on a little drive because I know there is a beautiful place that you have visited yourself and that completely blew you away, which is just beyond Samarkand. Shahzabz. Yes. Could you tell us about that? Tell us about Shahzabz. Shahzabz is, is, is another palace built by, by Timur. But rather unfortunately, the Uzbeks decided to turn it into a sort of theme park and knocked down half of it, restored the other half in over-restoration. And yeah, wiped out half half the buildings to build a sort of um, sort of merry-go-rounds and things. And so it's it is in the last ten or fifteen years. Very sad story. When did you see it then? Did you see it before that? I saw it no after uh, four or five years ago. After okay. Well, what did you see? I mean, we're talking about sort of twenty miles away, some twenty miles away from Samarkand. Yeah, you leave Samarkand, you go over the mountains. There's a wonderful pass at the top of which are all these kebab shops there's rivers running down the mountains and you sit on these sort of like charpoys great big charpoys mm. over the rivers so that the, the river's running through your charpoy as you're eating your kebabs and it's a wonderful spot and at the bottom is shy subs and beyond is this other extraordinary place that i read about last time uh, the wonderful timurid mosque at langa otta I mean, we've got an idea of, you know, sort of the building and the architecture, but I want to know more about the sort of fine art. So t- tell me a little bit more about the, the painting of Herat. And I want to definitely know more about Bizarre. Tell me about him because he sounds fabulous. So for connoisseurs of Persian painting, many people would say that the greatest moment in all Persian painting is this period in Herat. And the symbol of that is the work of the great uh, Kamaluddin Bizad who is regarded as the you know the supreme persian painter but the irony is while we have many people talking about how wonderful bizad is there are actually only a handful of surviving works by him and they are wonderful they they have that sort of geometrical formality that you find in persian miniature painting but bizad somehow infuses that with both a sort of extraordinary etcher-like geometric game that he plays. And also his characters are just so full of life and humanity. And wherever you go in subsequent Islamic art, people refer back to Bizad. They look on him as the great artist. And it's very frustrating for us today because we have literally a handful of paintings by him. Uh, and they're clearly not his his greatest works. They don't match to the reputation that he has by the diarist. But for example, Babo, Babo talks about Bizad as being the greatest painter of his day and, and being the greatest portraitist. 
Jahangir, the later Mughal emperor, also talks about how the best pictures in his collection in Delhi many years later are by Bizad. And he reappears over and over again in, I mean, as recently as, as modern novels, uh, Orhan Pamuk in My Name is Red refers back to Bizad. And the painters in My Name is Red talk about Bizad as, as, as the, you know, the Michelangelo of, uh, of, of Persian painting. But only, a, you know, a handful survive. You can look at them online. If you go you know, even onto Bizad's Wikipedia page, you can see these extraordinary paintings. And they are wonderful. They have this, they are, something very unexpected about them the the way that he organizes the geometry and then in the middle you have these incredible portraits i mean i'm loving hearing about this art i really am and you you tell it so well you sort of put somebody in the middle of it all but what is the legacy what is left i mean we touched upon you know the legacy for poor women who (laughs) come from this great lineage where women presided over greatness and great beauty but what else do we have left so there's two things that happens to this renaissance on one hand a lot of the artists, including Bizad, are moved in the next bit of history down to Tabriz, where the Safavids commission the greatest work of, uh, many people would say, of Persian painting, which is the Shahnameh of Shah Tamasp. And this is an extraordinary painted volume of the Shahnameh, now known as the Shahnameh of Shah Tamasp, who was the son of Shah Ismail, who completed it. And for Shah Ismail, the Shah Nameh, in the, exactly the way that Vesta described it in, in her episode on Ferdowsi, the Shah Nameh was the embodiment of Persian culture. And the commanding red-haired Shah Ismail named all his male children after the heroes of the Shah Nameh. Uh, and his commission of this magnificently illustrated version of the epic that bears the name of his son is part of that same effort. And he calls all the greatest artists who have been working in Herat, and he calls them to Tabriz, his capital. And he mixes them with the other great artists who've been working for his rivals, the leaders of the White Sheep and uh, the, uh, the Ak Kayonlu. And he brings them together in Tabriz, and they work on this extraordinary, beautifully illustrated, massive page-by-page illustrated Shahnameh. And it's the most ambitious manuscript project arguably ever ordered by an Islamic ruler. The huge scale of the endeavor, which consisted of about 30,000 Nastalik couplets arranged in 759 folios, was illustrated with no less than 258 full-page figurative miniatures, all of which are now regarded as the great masterpieces of Persian art. And oh, they're just they're just so wonderful. You find under the white sheep that the artists of Tabriz and Shiraz had both sort of excelled in a sort of dreamy, imaginative, fabulous style of miniature painting with flattened architecture, heightened colour, and, and and sort of fantastic, weird landscape. And this expressionism was quite different from the, if you like, psychologically penetrating naturalistic, hyper-exact style that was produced by Bizad and his co-painters in Timurid Herat. And these two traditions come together, working side by side on this vast new Shaname project. The two schools, once so very distinct, gradually fused into what became an entirely new Safavid court style. And there's a very nice story just to finish this, because when Shaysmel loses the Battle of, of Chandaran, 
and the Ottomans capture chunks of Safavid territory, particularly in Iraq. This is the moment, it seems, that this great volume falls into the hands of the Turks and it ends up in the top Kapi library. And then in mysterious and possibly not entirely innocent ways, it leaves Top Cappy and finds its way to America, where it's bought on the art market by a man called Arthur Houghton, who breaks it up and gives some pages to the Metropolitan Museum, where they're exhibited in the 1970s. And it was one of the great landmark moments for Persian culture when this extraordinary exhibition of masterpieces from the Shanameh Shatamas was put on at the Met. And there's an extraordinary end to the story because after the Iranian Revolution, there turned out to be a whole world of American modernist paintings that the Shah and his wife, Empress Farah, had been collecting. And they just got put by the mullahs into a warehouse. And this included one great masterpiece of contemporary art, which is William de Kooning's Woman 3. And the very racy London art dealer, Oliver Hoare, who is supposed to have been a lover of Lady Di, uh, Princess Diana. I thought, friend, do we know he was a boyfriend? Yes, do we definitely uh, know? that's oh, what right. it always said. Right. That is quite solid. And okay. uh, he <laughs> arranged an extraordinary swap between the William de Kooning, woman three, that had been sitting in a warehouse in Tehran, and the remains of the Shahnameh of Shah Tamas, which uh, the pages that weren't in the Met Museum and hadn't been put on the art market were given for sale or, or to swap for the, uh, for the de Kooning. And there was this incredibly filmic moment on the tarmac in Vienna when one plane arrived from Tehran with Woman 3, the de Kooning painting, and another plane arrived from America with the Shahnameh of and there, on the tarmac in Vienna Airport, like a scene from a Le Carre novel, these two were swapped. And the great Shaname of Shah Tamasp went home to Iran, where it remains. So that's one legacy. It goes to Tabriz and becomes the basis and the inspiration for the art of the Safavids. And in a future episode, I think we're going to get Barnaby Rogerson on to talk about more about the Safavids and Tabriz. But the other legacy is Babo. Babo, you remember, as a young man driven out of Samarkand, visits Herat and feels himself this sort of um, bumpkin uh, in the presence of all his much, much more sophisticated cousins who know how to eat more sophisticated dishes, uh, recite poetry with more elan, who are commissioning gorgeous mosques and poetry and, and, and generally make him feel like a provincial. And it is the example of Herat that Babo takes to India when he conquers it in 1526. And many of the artists and the architects who go to form Mughal miniature painting and Mughal architecture are the products of this renaissance in Herat and Samarkand. Been absolutely wonderful. William, thank you so very much. I envy you, actually, your, your footprints across the world. You've seen such wonderful things. These places are out there. I mean, Herat, we can't get to, but Samarkand is not a, a not a difficult place to visit these days. Turkish Airlines will take you there from London via Istanbul very cheaply. Samarkand, Tashkent, these are, these are extraordinary, extraordinary places to visit. Well, with that piece of travel advice, that's it for this episode of Empire. Pack your bags, but do be back for the next one. Till then, it's goodbye from me, Anita Arnon. And me, William Durimple.